Good morning. My name is Lynn Pugh, and I'm going to read the scripture this morning, uh, 2 Peter 2, 1 through 10a. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would help us. Help us to see its relevance. It is relevant. Help us to see its relevance for our life today. Lord, we would be those who would persevere, who would be faithful to the end. Give us eyes that can spot falsehood, that can spot false teachers, that would not be pulled in to their lies. Lord, may you give us uh, eyes today to see the truth, and not just that these things are true, but that it is good, it is lovely, it is beautiful. The truth is all these things. May our hearts go after it. Uh, may our hearts long for Jesus uh, and to be his people sitting under his throne. Lord, we ask all these things in his precious name. Amen. It happened again. And it was all too predictable. Someone on screen quoted the Bible. A character in a Hollywood film prayed in Jesus' name. And instantly I knew he's going to be the bad guy. She will turn out to be the villain before the movie ends. Have you noticed this? I've noticed it and others have noticed it as well. Even Hollywood actors are now beginning to speak up about this trend. I read an article recently that began with a well-known actor who's not a Christian talking about the all-too-predictable ways that Christians are portrayed on film. It was noted that despite most of the people in the world being religious and a large proportion of those people being Christian, Hollywood screenwriters seem to have a very limited imagination when it comes to portraying Christians. Following the actor's comment, the article went on to identify the five Christians you'll meet in the movies. Hollywood's collective imagination can't seem to get past these five portrayals of Christians. 
And I want to give these to you now for your edification. Uh, but I'm going to do these really rapid fire and, and leave out the long string of examples that were given in the article for each of these. Uh, I'm sure you already know what the first of these five will be, right? Of the five Christians you'll meet at the movies, the first is what? The hypocrite. The hypocrite. The hypocrite puts on a deceptive show of religious piety which serves to mask their true nature. In movies, it's usually some irreligious or non-religious character who gets to play the hero by unmasking the hypocrite before the end. The Christian as the hypocrite has been a Hollywood staple for years and years and is only now beginning to be rivaled by this next portrayal. There's the hypocrite, but then there's also the bully. Have you seen this? The bully. The bully is the Bible-thumping, domineering, think the prison warden in the Shawshank Redemption. The bully uses religion like a tool to control people, to manipulate others, to do his bidding. Christians are more and more being portrayed in film, not just as hypocrites, but as bullies. Or else, they're depicted as this. Number three, the unfeeling. The unfeeling Christian isn't necessarily a hypocrite or a bully, but is just cold. Just cold. The reason for this that's often given is their dogmatic stances. That dogmatic stances that make them rigid and removes any sense of compassion they have for the other characters. They're usually not sympathetic characters at all. They're not the character you want to be because they themselves are unable to sympathize with what's going on in the story and with the other characters. If Hollywood ever gives us a sympathetic portrayal of a Christian, it's most likely this one, number four, the well-meaning dolt. <laughs> the well-meaning dolt is a Christian who is good-natured and kind but who isn't the sharpest knife in the drawer? Have you seen this? They usually have some non-religious friends, though, who get them out of the messes they get themselves in and solve their on-screen problems. You're left thinking that their dim-wittedness is the main reason that they are a Christian. The biggest reason they believe is that they're just really gullible. They're not very smart. If there is a Hollywood portrayal of a smart Christian, it's usually this last one, number five, the wise heretic. The wise heretic may start the story affirming orthodox beliefs, but he evolves on those beliefs, usually in response to some central conflict or personal tragedy. He may continue to consider himself a Christian, but he has discovered by the story's end that many of his most cherished beliefs were all wrong. He is seen as a sympathetic character because he's willing to let go of deep-held traditional beliefs in pursuit of some personal truth. Now, we can all shake our heads this morning and feel under attack. We can all nod our heads and feel misrepresented. But we need to acknowledge this morning that there are religious bad guys in the world. Hollywood didn't make that up. There are religious hypocrites. There are real bullies. 
C.S. Lewis observed a long time ago, he said that the worst kind of bad man is a religious bad man. Because the religious bad man believes that he has God's justification for the evil that he commits. We'd all rather be under the thumb of a bad boss than under the thumb of the Taliban or ISIS, right? The religious bad man is the worst of the two. The criminal cartel probably still recognizes the things they do are bad. But the religious jihadi sincerely thinks that the evil he does is good. Becoming a human bomb will be what gets him into paradise. There are religious baddies in the world. Hollywood knows it. We recognize it as well. Second Peter recognizes it. In our Second Peter passage today, we are confronted with a far more perceptive portrayal of religious baddies than anything Hollywood can give us. Far more real, far more vivid, far more fair. Where Hollywood often paints the whole with the fringe, the Bible doesn't do the same. The Bible doesn't paint false pictures, but gives us the defining qualities to look for in religious bad men. Here's the essence, not a scriptwriter's caricature. Here is the actual essence. These things are important for us to see today if we are to be a people who are, who are going to be faithful to the end. That's our theme as we journey through the book of 2 Peter. We're going through the whole book together. Faithful to the end. In order to be faithful to the end, we need to be able to recognize false teaching and false teachers, Peter says. We need to be able to recognize real religious baddies in the world and not be fooled by the false betrayals that tend to lump us all in together. So, in contrast to the five Christians you'll meet at the movies, I'm going to give you the three characteristics of religious baddies that you'll meet in the real world. There were five characteristics I originally had, but because it's Mother's Day and I know you all plan to go out to lunch, there are only three this morning. Uh, if you're taking notes before I dive into those three characteristics, I want to give you the main idea of this passage as a single point. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 mainly teaches us that false teachers will come, but true believers will triumph. False teachers will come, verses 1 through 3, but true believers will triumph, verses 4 through 10. Now, under the first part of that big idea, false teachers will come, I want you to see the three marks of those false teachers. Here are three characteristics of false teachers which ring truer than the five tropes for Christians that you'll meet in the movies. The first of these defining marks is found in verse 1. Look at verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, denying, even denying, the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. False teachers in the real world are, number one, heretical innovators. Heretical innovators. You see that verse one? They secretly introduce destructive heresies. They do it secretly. They don't advertise it. They don't put it on their church marquee for the newest heresies come here. They secretly and subtly introduce teaching that will destroy. Heresy, 
That's what heresy is. It is soul-destroying error. Now, there is a big, big difference between just being wrong and being a heretic. Okay? You need to recognize that. There's a big difference between those two things. Not every error is a soul-destroying one. Not every false belief is heresy. Praise God. It's not. It's actually astounding the number of things that we can get wrong and it not be heresy. We can be wrong about a great number of things and still be right with God. I'm sure there are things that I believe that are wrong. Yes. I'm sure there are things I say that are mistaken. I'm sure even though I'm as careful as I can be when I stand behind this pulpit, I'm sure there are things that I have said here that are misleading, that don't rightly reflect reality. Like I once heard John MacArthur say, I know that there are problems in my theology, but if I knew what they were, I would correct them, right? If you knew what they were, you would correct them. I'm sure there are things I've gotten wrong, but as I say in our membership class, there is a lot of room for getting things wrong. There's a lot of room for disagreements in our church family on a whole range of issues. Eschatology, beliefs about the end times. We can all disagree. Soteriology, how sovereign is God in salvation? Stances on alcohol or methodologies and missions, political stances. In all these things, there is room for disagreement while still maintaining warm Christian fellowship together. But there are essential first-tier issues that we cannot get wrong. The Trinity, the deity of Jesus, the incarnation, the virgin birth, the sinlessness of Christ, the bodily resurrection. If we get these things wrong, we have gone into the realm of heresy. If we say Jesus isn't God or he didn't really rise from the dead, we've changed an essential truth. We are no longer Christians by definition because Christians have always been defined as those people who believe Jesus is God and that he rose from the dead. If you deny that now, you're not a Christian. You may be part of a cult, but you're not a Christian. In college, I had a class that was called contemporary religious space. We called it the cult class. <laughs> One group after another would come in sharing with us what they believed, and we could ask them any questions we wanted to ask them. We had Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Moonies, on and on. The list went. And to a person, every single group, when I asked them about it, denied the Trinity. Every single group denied that Jesus was God. That was all I needed to know, because if you deny an essential truth, if you believe a heresy, it really doesn't matter what else you get right. Get it wrong on Jesus, it doesn't matter what you get right. You can still believe in Jesus, like Mormons do, like Jehovah's Witnesses do, but if the Jesus you believe in isn't fully God, if he isn't an equal member of the Trinity, an eternal person, then you aren't believing in the Jesus of the Bible. You're believing in some other Jesus. You're believing in the Jesus of your imagination. 
Not the Jesus of reality. Not the Jesus who reveals himself to us in the word of God. Faith in some other imaginary Jesus won't save you, will it? Faith in some other Jesus will not save. That's why heresy is a soul-destroying error. It gets people believing a different gospel, which is not a gospel at all. It gets people putting their hope in a different Savior, a Savior who doesn't exist. Peter says here that they deny the Master. They deny Jesus who bought them. This is one of the reasons why we are to be, beware of theological innovation. Peter said in chapter 1, verse 12, that we looked at last week, he said, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. You don't want a religious leader who is a theological innovator continuously giving you new truths to believe. Like Peter, you want a pastor who is taking truth your mind already knows and who is week by week trying to capture your heart with that truth you know. Maybe a truth you've known all your life. Capture your heart with it anew and afresh. You don't want a theological innovator. History tells us of many theological innovators who thought they were doing good, who said that they were out to save the church, but who introduced destructive heresies instead. This happened in Germany around the turn of the 20th century. As the 1800s were coming to an end, many of the mainline church leaders were saying to themselves, modern man will never accept all these miracles in the Bible. Modern man will never accept all these things recorded in the Gospels. No one comes back from the dead. So we've got to peel back the outer husk of what the Bible says in order to get to the kernel of truth. That's what German theological liberalism sought to do. But by denying the resurrection and the supernatural for decades from the pulpit, the church in Germany was decimated by heresy and had no power left to resist when an Adolf Hitler came upon the scene. This is the first dangerous mark of religious baddies. They are heretical innovators. Here's a second mark of false teachers. They are sensual recruiters. Look at verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. This is where Hollywood may have the characterization right. A religious bad guy is someone who uses spiritual language and authority to pull people into immorality. They're recruiters. Sometimes false teachers do that through giving people the spiritual justification they want to do the sinful thing they desire. But other times, they use their position of authority to lure victims into sensual relationships. I feel like Hollywood has made a movie or two about this in recent years. It's the young, charismatic preacher who cloaks sensuality and spiritual language and manipulates vulnerable people. You see that. You might be hard-pressed, actually, to find a cult active today that, where this very thing hasn't happened. 
a cult leader calling others to follow him in some course of sensuality. We know this is a mark of religious baddies. We know it. Hollywood knows it too. But Hollywood often makes the very mistake that Peter highlights here in verse 2. Verse 2, he says, Many will follow in their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. In broadcasting the bad, Hollywood takes as an opportunity to malign the good along with it. They lump both in together, and the way of truth is maligned. The way of truth becomes no different than the way of sensuality. Verse 2. People can see the danger of cults and cult leaders and then lump you in with them and your religious beliefs in with the same bad guys. We found this out in France. If you weren't Roman Catholic, the very first thing you had to do as Protestants was convince people that you were not part of a cult. And there's no shortcut to doing that. It takes time. It takes time for people to see that the love we talk about isn't eros, it's agape. It's Christ-like love. We aren't led on by our sensual appetites, but by a self-sacrificing Savior. We need to show by contrast that we are not sensual recruiters pulling others in to satisfy our appetites, but we are men and women who have found a Savior, a good Savior. And unlike most Hollywood screenwriters, we know why these things are wrong. Unlike most of the entertainment industry, we know the problem and the dangers, what they are when it comes to sensuality. There are problems that Hollywood tends to feed far more than it tends to expose. But that shouldn't surprise anyone. One thing that the film industry and false teachers can't help but have in common is this. They both want to sell people something. They both want to sell people candy for their eyes. They both want to tickle their ears. But Jesus comes, on the other hand, and doesn't give us what we want. He gives us something much better. He gives us what we need. We need freedom from sin's dominion. Freedom from the dominion of our deadening desires. So, false teachers will come, and they will be marked by heresy, verse 1. By sensuality, verse 2, and verse 3, they will be marked by greed. Here's our third mark. They will be greedy exploiters. Greedy exploiters. Look at verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Who would have guessed it? Religious baddies are after power, sex, money. Those three things in three verses. Who would have guessed it, right? They're after spiritual control over others, verse 1. They're after sensual pleasures, verse 2. And they're after your money, verse 3. Who could have seen that coming? We all did, right? We all saw that. We can all look at the personal empires that some people build and fill a hitch in our spirit, something tells me that they may not be in it for the right reason. And then some scandal will hit. Something happens and they'll be unmasked as, unmasked as an adulterer or as an abuser 
or as a swindler. And the media jumps on it like it's Christmas. Here's another religious bad guy. You're all fools for letting people like this take you in. Better for you just to stay away from all organized religion entirely. Peter says, no, don't stay away, but be on the alert. You should have seen this coming. God has told you these people will come. God has told you what to look for in them. Look for doctrinal deviation. Look for sensuality. Look for greed. You shouldn't be surprised when you see these things. And you shouldn't be discouraged either. You shouldn't be discouraged when someone is exposed as a charlatan. What saddens us most should be this, verse 2. Because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Because a few greedy exploiters do exist, Hollywood feels free to paint with a broad brush and malign the way of truth. All churches are after your money. All church leaders are greedy exploiters. Peter says, no, that's not what you are to be. That's who you are to look out for. That's who God's judgment is coming for. As a church, we need to shake up the world's narrative that we are greedy exploiters, like the religious baddies that get exposed in the media. One way that we push back on that narrative, and it's very small, very subtle, but intentional decision, it's this. I, I was asked by a deacon recently, would I be in favor of passing around the offering plates again? Nothing wrong with that. Would, would I be in favor of that? And in response, I said, well, well, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And it could lead to more giving. My gut says no. It says no for this reason. I don't want anyone to give because they were put on the spot or felt ashamed to let the plate pass by or felt like the church was after their money. I don't want anyone to feel that way. I want you to be generous because you see it is good. It is good for your soul to give generously. I want you to give because you're grateful for the opportunity Jesus provides through the mission of his church to store up for yourself treasure in heaven. I'm very happy with the two unassuming offering boxes we have by the back door. Uh, we don't even mention that they're there most weeks. They're there. No one sees as you give there. It's not monitored. It's not a show. I'm also very happy with the way that more and more people are giving online. No one sees what's being done. No one sees what happens. Uh, now, our right hand doesn't know what our left hand is doing. That's what Jesus said to do when you give. Uh, I don't want to know. I don't know, and I don't want to know what anyone gives toward the ministry here at Alberta. I think that's the way it should be. When we were missionaries overseas and you gave to support what we were doing, I have no idea who gave what. And I don't know who to thank but God for carrying us through all those years. And I think that's a good thing. I want you to know that we have made and will continue to make 
prayerfully, hopefully, intentional decisions to push back on the cultural narrative that the church is full of charlatans who are after your money. Peter says those people do exist. Hollywood would have you looking for them everywhere in every church. But God has told us to watch out, to watch out for them so that Christ's church could continue to be faithful to the end. Those are the three marks of false teachers we see. They're heretical innovators, verse 1. They're central recruiters, verse 2. They're greedy explorers. When you look for religious baddies, you're looking for people whose views of power, sex, and money are shaped more by the world, more by Hollywood, than they are by Jesus. False teachers will come, Peter says, but true believers will triumph. We see that in verses 4 through 10. These verses, which read like one giant run-on sentence of a thought, give us three snapshots, three episodes, which illustrate that the baddies will not prevail. I'm going to run through each of these very quickly because we're now sprinting to the end. The first thing I want us to see is this, that true believers will triumph over, number one, the power of angels. Look at verse 4. For... If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, skip down to verse 9 to get the end of the sentence, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. As followers of Christ, we have real spiritual enemies. Paul said our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. There are fallen angelic beings who actively oppose us and the cause of Christ. But Peter says, God knows how to rescue us from them. God knows how to make us triumph over them, to triumph over the tempter's lies. So that, the hymn says, though this world with devil's field should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. Why? For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word from God, one little word shall fail him. God knows how to deliver us and to keep under punishment our angelic enemies who are awaiting the final day. Here's a second thing I want you to see. True believers will triumph over the power of angels and over the rest of the world, verse 5. Here's Peter's second example, verse 5. And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God knows how to rescue his people when, quite literally, the rest of the world is against them. That's what happened with Noah. Quite literally, the rest of the world against him. It doesn't matter if the whole world is going one way and you're the only one swimming against the tide. It doesn't matter if the whole world is raging like a flood around you. 
We have an ark to escape to. We have a secure refuge. We have a mighty fortress in our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Athanasius was a church father who fought against heresy, fought against the heresy of Arianism, a belief that denied the Trinity, that denied that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. Athanasius was told that the whole Roman world was going after Arianism. The whole world is against you, Athanasius. To which he responded, Athanasius contra mundum. If the whole world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is against the world. And while hiding in exile, Athanasius prayed, and he wrote, and he trusted God. And in time, this one little Egyptian man pushed back the tide of a world turning to heresy. God can cause us to triumph even when the whole world is turned against us. That's what we learn here in 2 Peter. Here's a third and last example. True believers will triumph over the power of angels, the rest of the world, and number three, the immorality of the culture. Verses 6 through 8. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter... And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, they remind us of God's judgment on immorality But also, they remind us that there is nothing new under the sun, is there? Hollywood isn't inventing new things. The gift of sexuality has always been perverted. The immorality that grieves you today is nothing new. God doesn't insulate his people from seeing such things. What Lot saw and heard burdened his soul. But, verse 9... God is able to rescue his people from temptation and keep the rest under punishment. Now, you know this. If we were to go back and read Lot's story, we'd see that Lot's situation and responses were often far from ideal. He doesn't come out smelling like a rose in the book of Genesis, does he? His relationship with his daughters is rather messed up. His wife's response to leaving Sodom was rather a salty one. But, boo, but there is an encouragement for us here. When the Spirit of God, who's inspiring Peter's words, looks back at Lot, God sees the righteousness of faith and not Lot's many faults. Praise the Lord. I think it's the same for us. It's the same in Hebrews chapter 11. Samson, boy, that's a flawed guy. But Samson's faith is commended, and his foolishness is never mentioned. And that should really encourage us. God can make us triumph, and he will remember us for our triumphs and not our foolishness and our defeats. The way we are represented before him 
will be the opposite of the way Hollywood represents us. Hollywood can take the fringe bad and paint it over the whole. God can take the little bitty bit of faith and paint Christ's righteousness over the whole of our story. With Hollywood so obsessed today with representation, you would think they could better represent the average Jesus-loving, humbly serving, thoughtful Christian that we see all around us here this morning. But to do that, they would have to understand what motivates us, the gospel that drives our heart. It's not the same views of power, sex, money that drive them. We believe a good news that changes everything. We believe a gospel that changes us and causes our heart to rise up and sing something crazy. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the betrayal of a believing heart that I would like to see. That's the Christian I would like to meet in the movies. Father, I ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see what is false. May we flee from it. Give us eyes to see what is true. May we love it. And may we make the truth attractive. May we adorn the gospel of grace with lives that have been changed by it. Lives that screenwriters in Hollywood cannot understand. May we live lives that require a gospel explanation to describe all that we do, how we pour ourselves out, how we let goods and kindred go. May we be a people who wholeheartedly, steadfastly hold to the truth. May we not be cowed. May we not be disheartened. May we not be changed by the current of culture going another direction. May we swim against knowing that you will give us the victory. We will triumph in Christ through our faith in him. Faith is the victory. May we find a mighty fortress in our God to see us through all things. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.